Hello, I'm Nathan Fung, and this is Let's Find Out, a podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Muscogee Skygon, on Treaty 6 territory. We take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and then we find out the answers together. Let's Find Out is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Today, we're wrapping up this little mini-series looking at the Miramar restaurant with a look at the wedding reception that went horribly wrong inside its doors back in the summer of 2004, where a fight broke up between two rival gangs and left two people dead. We'll also be looking at the wider history of gang violence in Edmonton from around the same time, a topic I knew very little about until now. We start off today by meeting up with the show's producer, Chris Chang and Phillips, on a now barren site on Jasper Ave, where this once beloved dim sum joint used to be. Okay, Nathan, I have good news for you. Uh, I just came from the moth. This is why I have brought you a uh, peanut butter uh, beverage thing, because I was super hot and needed something to drink myself. And while I was in the moth, I asked Quinn there uh, if her restaurant is indeed, as I suspected, next door to the Miramis site, and she said yes. So this parking lot that we are now in, this uh, rubbly kind of empty lot, uh, is indeed where the Mirama restaurant used to stand. And the most desolate part of it is uh, for sure this abandoned single sandal. One lady's strapped blue and rhinestoned sandal, size five. <laughs> yeah, the pavement here is just all crumbly. It's just reducing back to its component rocks. And uh, luckily for us, Sidex, the company that knocked down the Mirama and is building a condo tower across the street and apparently also owns the Moth, Sidex has generously uh, offered to be mixing cement across the street from us uh-huh. the whole time we're recording. So thanks, Sidex. Just Appreciate especially that. Especially for us who need to record things. Yeah. yeah. Like, you, you describe this as post-apocalyptic. Well, it doesn't even, it, it, it doesn't even look like a knockdown lot to me. Because um, there is like a sort of empty spot where I guess there was like the foundation of the building before. But in addition to that, there's like all this stuff that should look, be just like flat pavement and now is just like kind of all torn up and, and rubbly and like looks like some gigantic truck and or bomb has run over it. And also there are weeds amidst it. Like it's there's a lot of desolation here. So, uh, the one thing I wanted to tell you is that I did specifically watch West Side Story for today. <gasps> really? Yes, I watched it last night for the first time. Oh my gosh, what did you think? Uh, my favorite song, uh, Hey Officer Krupke. Cool. Dear kindly Sergeant Krupke, you gotta understand, it's just our bringing up key that gets us out of hand. Our mothers all are junkies, our fathers all are drunks. Golly Moses, naturally we're punks. Though I'll, I'll need to watch it more times because like I don't remember the lyrics any, like that well after one viewing. But Maria's probably like the one that's stuck in my head in terms of like the actual like rhythm. So this is North Side Story is what we're talking about today. I don't know if I want to call it North Side Story. It seems a little cliched. Are there sharks? Are there jets? Were there people snapping at each other? What did you find out? What did I find out? 
Uh, is that how we want to start with just like saying, hey, I mentioned I watched Wet Side Story just for this because that's what you brought up last time <laughs> we talked about this. When you're a jet, you're a jet all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. When you're a jet, let them do what they can. You've got brothers around. You're a family man. Well, wh- let's I, I want to hear what actually what actually happened that day, because what happened that day? Um, I, I think I, we the first times that we talked about this yeah i was under the impression that it was like a gunfight in the parking lot mm-hmm. um and, and i was under the impression that it was just a knife fight insert west side story comparisons again <laughs> and then i dug for more articles about it and then it turns out that there was a gun fired at the site um but so. what what happened who who was at this wedding who, who got was at this hurt wedding? Who was who was shooting or stabbing who? What 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 even happened that day? So it happened on a Saturday in July 2004. There were two wedding receptions, one on the one on the second floor and one on the third floor. And police allege, again allege, because it's not proven in court that they were attended by rival gangs. Um, this wasn't the marriage between gangs, though. We're talking like unfortunately people. no. <laughs> so this does not cement the. Uh, the West Side Story comparison. <laughs> okay, one wedding party may have had people from one gang. The other wedding party on a separate floor may have had people from another rival gang. Which is a horrible coincidence when you think about it. Like, imagine being the person who was booking the event and like realizing that afterwards. Like, hey, maybe what what if you booked them on separate days? Hard to imagine how you could have f- that up more than booking two gangs, two rival gangs. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess you wouldn't have known, but like, that's just like terrible misfortune <gasps> wow yeah okay so there, there are people from these two gangs there at these weddings potentially allegedly this yes. is what's alleged and, and, and then what happens and then somehow so there, there, it's disputed where the fight started um, one article said it was started on the second floor a few articles said it started on the third floor instead okay I believe so one person was found dead on scene that's James Tran or uh, Tap Gong Tran I read that the groom himself was stabbed in the neck. But Holy he wasn't, crap. He, uh, I guess he survived somehow. Wow. Um, the other person who died was a Min Tang who died of his, of his head injuries after taking off life, being taken off life support a few days afterwards. God. Um, from what I was able to find, all the victims... So I believe... I'm not sure if it's including them or not, but seven people were, were, were injured. What? All of them were from the third floor. Wow, that's awful. I didn't know that. It sounded like things turned into quite a, a panicked frenzy. Like, in me, I, I, I'm trying to imagine a scene where you have like 500 potential guests, like in this building, just reacting to uh, all of a sudden there's a knife fight that breaks out in, in like this r- restaurant where you're celebrating the unions of like and these Mike, people. Last episode, you talked to Mike Tully, and he was saying there was one elevator, right? And it was like not great and not very big. So, like, I'm picturing, like, people panicking, trying to figure out how to get out. That's what the articles definitely made it sound like, yeah. Just people sort of, like, getting away from the scene. Now, I'm just jumping in here because I was able to talk to Reagan Owen, a detective at the EPS's historical homicide section, about this case a little bit. Now, he wasn't able to tell me anything new that isn't publicly available already, 
but I used the opportunity to ask him a few things, like how is it that a case like this, where you have over 500 potential witnesses, stay unsolved? It was a very uh, large scene because I, uh, there were six people that were were uh, attacked at this, at, or six people that were injured from, and, and actually out of those six people, two people died, mm -hmm. as you know, right? Um, so it, it's a large scene. So you can imagine uh, something like that is not, not easy to deal with right off the bat. First of all, we have hundreds of different uh, witnesses or potential witnesses, not everybody maybe saw something, but potentially you have hundreds of people. You have two families there, and, and, and uh, these two families are celebrating a wedding in this case, and the attack happens. Uh, the problem, of course, when you go to scenes like this is, uh, first of all, trying to get witnesses, secondly, trying to contain the witnesses, thirdly, trying to make sure that they're not all talking to each other, because uh, you don't want to have a, a, a biased uh, witness statement, right? You want to have a clean witness statement, so meaning that you haven't been uh, subjected to other person's observations. So, you know, we show up. I wasn't there. I wasn't at the scene. I can mm -hmm. tell you that, uh, obviously. But uh, when I read it over, it sounded very chaotic, and you had people running all over the place. Uh, police show up, trying to obtain witness statements. A forensic unit shows up, and again, that th same thing goes. When you have that many uh, injured parties, you try to take, um, you look at forensics and you look at uh, trying to identify different areas, but when it's so big as far as, as the people that were injured at this, there's there would have been a lot of blood and there would have been, um, you know, you, you do your normal fingerprints and you do all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, the reality is, is at a wedding, uh, there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, there'd be a reason for somebody to have their fingerprints, for example, at a scene because it's a wedding so mm. the fact that there's fingerprints at a scene of 500 people or whatever it was four or 500 people in both in the area wouldn't be a relevant uh, necessarily a relevant uh, critical thing you know what i mean by that because i mean it would be expected there's a lot of people there you have to try to identify who the suspects are now saying that you know what there were a lot of witnesses and as in many files for a variety of reasons uh, people don't like to come forward and they don't want to provide any information to uh, to the police. So uh, that's something that we find out in all files, but in all, a lot of files, there's always people that are reluctant to talk to us for a variety of reasons, you know, whether they're afraid of getting involved or they're afraid of the persons that maybe have done it or they just don't want to get involved. And, and that's, that's some of the obstacles we sometimes face in some of our files. And this particular file, so that's what we did. We tried to uh, speak to witnesses. We tried forensics. We tried uh, cameras. Uh, we tried a variety of different uh, different things to uh, to solve it. Okay, it just never progressed to charges ever being laid on anyone. That's right. Yeah, because of that, there was no charges laid. Um, you know, many many times you you have an inclination of what happened. Again, if you're investigating, knowing that the investigators aren't there at the scene when it happens, they have to rely on other people. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, there's a variety of reasons why somebody wouldn't want to come forward. Uh, even though we may have our, our – we can speculate on who, who did it, but without having witnesses or without having evidence, you really can't move forward on the file. 
that's that's really how those uh, this particular file was, and many files uh, that we actually investigate. Okay, that does sort of touch on another question I did have in mind, which is like a lot of the coverage um, that I reviewed over this does mention like there were at least over like 500 potential witnesses, and I guess without uh, before you talk to me about this, you'd sort of think that would make things easier for to find someone in yeah. this case. You're right. That's true. I agree with you. That that totally is. Uh, you Norma, when you read read that, you would go, "Well, geez, there has to be somebody that's willing to go to court out of all these people." Yeah, exactly. Right? Because it's what are the chances? This happened in a in a in a in a pub. Well, I don't know. If public area is not the right word, but in an area where there should have been maybe not all 500 people wouldn't have seen it. I don't think that's reasonable to think that. But I would certainly suggest that it wasn't just like this wasn't just one or two people that would have saw it. I would suggest that with that many people being uh, stabbed or, or injured, that there would have been, uh, you know, quite a few people that saw what happened. And you would think, like you said, you mentioned that there would be somebody saying, no, I want to go to court. I saw this and this is what happened. Um, but unfortunately that isn't the case. So, you know, it's, it is, I, I, I agree with your point is that you would think that there'd be, people that would say, yeah, this is what happened and I want to go to court. Uh, that's not that's not the case, though. Mm. Uh, it wasn't really a point. It's just sort of an observation. Like, this is... I Like, that was pretty... Like, I was nine when this happened, so, like, I, I just... This sort of just stayed in my memory a little bit, and that's sort of how I remembered it for, like, years, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. And when I tell people about it, because, well, mostly because it's an interesting thing, it's, like, that's what comes up. But, um... What's oh, the, what the thing we were just talking about with the 500 people? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, like I said, um, it's not like you know when you use if you use for an example, you know we have to remember here that this is a these are all people that were there at a, at a wedding. We all we weddings, right? So mm-hmm. everybody, a lot of people knew a lot of other people at that wedding. So this would be a little different than let's say for example. Um, let's use a random location, uh, you know, a couple of years ago or a few years ago, Toronto, where that guy was going down the street. I think it was in Youngstown or something uh, where he was going down the road and just randomly shooting people. And uh, he ran him over in the van, I think, actually. And that, all that stuff, you know what? Those are random people. And people will usually step up and they kind of uh, come forward in those cases. More often is what we see is where it's somebody that doesn't have any relationship to either the victims or the suspects. And we find that quite quite often, like, you know, people want to be helpful, I think, generally, if especially they don't know who the other parties are, and they do provide us information. And a lot of times we do get good, even to this day, like even on some of the more recent homicides I can think of, if you have a random situation where people have no uh, connection to any of the family, suspects, witnesses, then they, they are more inclined to come forward because I don't think they feel that uh, risk to themselves. But when it comes time where it's dealing with people that they know in this particular file, uh, I think there was people that obviously, I believe, you know, saw things that they could have helped us out with, but for whatever reason, uh, they don't, and uh, they didn't in this case. And that's why the investigators at the time um, had nothing that they could have moved forward on. Okay. So that's interesting. So you're saying like because people are, like all the witnesses there probably knew each other as well as the people who probably were responsible for the two ultimate deaths. Um, like that's what caused a lot of people to not come forward probably. Yeah. And you know what? Like I said, I don't know if they all knew each other. Like You know, you've been to a wedding where you know 
some of the people, but you don't know a lot. You don't know everybody for sure. So, you know, this is a big giant wedding and you know what? Most, most of the people probably maybe have left or some have left. Uh, some have no idea who these other people are that are, they're interacting with um, this. They, you know what? I would believe that some would pro some had did provide descriptions, but if they didn't know who the person was, then, you know, they wouldn't be able to be that. There's some helpful, there's some benefit, obviously in saying this is the description of the guy and this is what he was wearing, but you know, everyone at a, that wedding is probably wearing suits and et cetera, et cetera. But you need people that say, yeah, pick them out of a photo lineup or say, yeah, that guy's this guy or whatever the case may be. So you can actually identify that person. So I, I would suggest that out of those, all those people there, I doubt that everybody knew the names of the persons that did it or knows who they were. But some people at that wedding knew who the, the, the suspects likely were. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's not, I wouldn't say all 500 people were like, oh, it's this guy or that guy. It's just, I think, I definitely some people at that wedding, uh, at those weddings, knew what was going on. And those people are the ones that we needed to hopefully come forward and, and provide us information. Yeah. So what's the likelihood of, like, new information coming forward on it? Yeah. You know what? I, I, I would say, in this particular one, I would say that there is a lot of opportunity there for, uh, not, not forensically. I can't really say anything forensically is going to really be that valuable here but perhaps uh somebody who um wants to come forward and and provide us information on this file is still possible i mean i talked to my boss yesterday there's still a a chance somebody could still come forward and say hey i want to provide information or i want to go to court on this matter or whatever the case may be so i guess that's what i would leave it at is that yeah there's always a chance that that could still happen We'll be back in a bit, but first, this episode of Let's Find Out is brought to you by CPA Alberta. It may be cliche to say now, but we're really living in unprecedented times. That's why you should consider hiring a chartered professional accountant to help guide you through this pandemic and jumpstart your recovery. With CPA on your team, you can be confident you will find the best solutions to even bigger business problems. CPAs are trained to dig in and truly understand how an organization operates, where it's already excelling, and how it can do better. For an inside look at how Alberta CPAs are supporting their clients through the pandemic, follow CPA Alberta on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. You can also visit CPAAlberta.com to find out more. This episode of Let's Find Out is also brought to you by ATB Financial. Today, I want to tell you about ATB's new podcast, The Future Of. Join Todd Hirsch, ATB's Vice President and Chief Economist, as he connects with special guests who offer unique and useful perspectives about the future. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. From the future of women in business to the changing nature of work itself, the future of helps us understand what's coming and what we need to do today to get the tomorrow we want. Featuring two episodes each month, plus bonus episodes, the future of includes interviews of top community and business leaders from Alberta and around the world. Subscribe to the future of in the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere podcasts are found. And connect to ask your questions about the future by emailing thefutureof at atp.com. So obviously there's so much you can do when you're looking into an unsolved murder case. There's no charges, there's no evidence presented to court, so it limits the story we sort of 
you're able to tell. And we're journalists, not detectives. But what is there to know about the gang situation in Edmonton at the time of this horrible incident? Like, the thing at Mirma may or may not have involved Asian gangs, but that's not something a lot of people talk about anymore? Especially in the context of Edmonton. And personally, it's something I know next to nothing about. So what is there to be learned from this? I guess to start off from the very beginning, like, we've been working on this for like a few weeks at this point. We ran into a lot of dead ends. We were hoping to at least speak to like an expert on gangs or on an expert on Asian gangs or, or something like that, or maybe an investigator who worked in the case, all of the above. And we sort of ran into a lot of dead ends, just frustratingly. I, in the time, a lot of couldn't find an expert on Asian gangs who could speak about this. But when I went to the Edmonton archives um, was when finally made progress on this. So I went there earlier this week, and the first thing that they, and they just have like a big folder, like an inch and a half like thick folder on, on clippings of gang stories. Um, and I think after going through it, it, it provided me a lot of context as to like, what was the gang situation like in terms of in Edmonton around that time? This, this, the severeness of the problem of Asian gangs in the early 2000s in Edmonton, which I'm, it makes me wonder if it's a thing now still, but even though I couldn't find anything up, it's really surprising that like so much of stuff from like before 2010 isn't easily accessible just via Google search, which is sort of what, which is sort of why I didn't expect to find that much in the Edmonton archives. Hmm. I don't know. So if you want me to re, like retake the steps of like what I saw in the Edmonton archives. So the first thing the archivist there, Dylan, gave me was this folder. It was, it was timestamp 2000 to 2007. So you went through, you went to the city archives, you looked through this gigantic file on gangs. Yeah, which took me basically a whole day. <laughs> which is great. I am so envious. Love that kind of day. Um, so how did that help you paint in the picture of the, the context for what happened at the Miramar? I guess I should mention that I, I tried talking to, um, after hitting so many dead ends, I did try talking to our former assistant producer, Omar Salafu, yep. on what he, if he could give me any pointers on this. And I'm not going to, just to abbreviate our conversation, he sort of said that, like, well, it's probably, like, you're probably, like, trying to find some, uh, trying to look into something that wasn't that, not that's honestly not that rare in terms of, like, what the gang violence situation was like in Edmonton. That, like, the reason why I remember it is because it happened in, like, a popular restaurant and it made headlines. But in reality, it probably was, like, a bigger picture where gang violence wasn't that uncommon. And I think that's sort of the case. At the turn of the millennium, the first homicide of the new millennium in Edmonton was the death of a gangster after a 14-block car chase on Candy Cane Lane. Whoa. This is the, like, fancy light show in the suburbs? Yeah. Uh... And but like that's it like that like that's the, that's the first thing I see when I open this folder, is that this guy in the middle of like in like cold January was like gunned down by cops after turning a gun on his pursuers. Oh my god. Yeah, the guy his name was or Crazy Jimmy Hong, is the nickname. Okay. Uh, yeah, and not only that, but the articles made mentions of like how the previous summer, the summer of 1999, was just a crazy time in terms of gang violence. Um, it made mentions of, like, an actual feud between two Asian gangs in Edmonton. Hmm. So, like, that was the first time I heard of it. Um, 
and it was surprising to like sort of like hear about that the first time i've heard of the like i have a vague memory of some like gang violence and stuff when like hearing about it in the news when i was younger but i never heard about like names of gangs like what 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 did you find out about like i couldn't find much about some of these i couldn't find much about like names of gangs either and i i imagine it's a very fluid situation um, especially we're talking about like local groups and not like groups that have like other branches like elsewhere mm. um, I'm not sure how gangs work that's why I wish I could get an expert to talk about it so in the summer of 1999 uh, it sounded like the feud was between the Trang family drug gang and the crazy Jimmy gang um, I found this one blurb saying that from June 23, 1999 to January 10 uh, 2000 four people died and eight shootings were investigated as gang related hmm uh, while like digging through the folder, there's like there were numerous like sort of features, like full page features on like, hey, here are some of like the last ten or fifteen like known gang related incidents. Um, and every time they talk about the um, the feud between the two Asian gangs in 1999, it just says that there was a spree of shootings and bombings. Hmm. Um, I sort of wish they had a specific number on like how many shootings or how many people are injured, but like it, it was consistent. Like there were, there were at least two or three features that were similar, and they they, they just all call it like that. There was just a spree of shootings. But yeah, um, it sounded like the police arrested around 40 gang members from the Trang family drug gang. Um, Whoa. And it was going to be the trial of the century, quote-unquote, um, as dubbed by a lot of columnists at the time, including Paula Simons, um, to the point where they had to build a new courtroom in Edmonton Law Courts just to sort of fit the amount of like, people who were going to be put on trial. Um, wow. So this happened in, in like 2000. Um, people were warning at the time that it was going to be a waste of time or a waste of money. And that's what happened. Uh, apparently the case fell through. The judge ruled that it took too long by 2004. And the case sort of fell apart under the weight of the paperwork that happened. This does not sound like the kind of thing that you'd associate with Edmonton. Like when I think of like places that have to build a new courtroom for gangsters, like... I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I've just seen like too many like media images of, of like New York mobsters, but that's that's the picture that I have. Not like we're, we're still thinking of West Side Story. We're still thinking of West Side Story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, going back to this folder, so there was mentions of the first homicide of, of the new millennium, and then there was mentions of the of like the gang war that happened just before it, and then the one story that like was all pretty well detailed is the death of a 29 year old John Paul Arruda in October 2000 uh, it's noteworthy because this guy he was completely innocent but he was killed by three people who mistook him for someone else Damn. he was killed I believe around White Avenue and he was ambushed because his car was similar to the to the other vehicle that their intended target was, was driving um it was the killers were free Vietnamese uh, men. Two of them were brothers. Uh, all free Vietnamese men in their like twenties. Hmm. But um, yeah, this guy apparently he was a father free, so it sort of added a bit of tragedy to that. It sounds like, from the sounds of it, like uh, completely innocent bystanders in like gang violence and gang deaths were are are uncommon in around hmm. this time. That's horrible to hear about, though. Yeah. Um, unlike the Miramar one, the men were caught eventually. Hmm. I was able to find that by 2008 and 2010, they were caught and deported back to Vietnam. 
Oh, they were deported. They were deported, uh, which is surprising because it makes me wonder if they were born here or not. They looked really young from their mugshot photos I found on the um, the archive clipping. Whoa. So given that there that there was a police investigation of these murders, like, w- what did you find out about police trying to, um, like, like work on this case and or, like, generally deal with gangs at the time? So at the time... Like, there, there wasn't just Asian gangs. There was also, like, I believe there was an Aboriginal gang. There was a, a gang consisting of, like, South, um, South Asians, I think. Um, there was a lot um, going on. Uh, but in terms of, there was an actual Asian gang unit formed around 1991 hmm. or so. And then I believe the, the, the unit went through several states where it was um, reduced, dissolved, and then reformed after several incidents over the decades uh, or, or not over the decades but over the years I don't, I'm not sure what they did and I wasn't able to speak to anyone for, who used to be part of it but I guess this leads into the thing that really sort of surprised me from my, my findings so in the folder there wasn't actually like a scan of the article about Miramut itself which surprised me hmm. but what I was able to find uh, was an article from later that year saying that the police had actually tried to broker a peace between the two gangs involved well like they tried to sit people down and be like, "Hey, let's maybe not be stabbing each other. Let's not stab each other, and let's not let's stop it before someone else who's completely innocent gets hurt." Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And it sounded like no one was interested in, in sitting down to the table, <sighs> coming to the table to talk. Um, it, it sounds like, and not only that, but it wasn't the first time they did this tactic. Um, there was a, a, a turf war between two other gangs in Millwoods around 2000, and apparently that was the approach they took there as well, where they tried to sit them down. That was also a, a terrible story where someone's brother was killed because instead of the gang leader, they took the gang leader's brother. Oh, God. So given what you found out, at the end of the day, do you think what happened at the Mirama, these murders, do, do you think that it was unique? I still ask myself that. I'm honestly not sure. Um... Part of me says yes, but that's also, like, again, like, just sort of how, like, my personal connection of how, like, I first learned of this. Like, again, I was nine years old, and this is a restaurant that I frequented a little bit. I should note that, like, I want to avoid, like, a correlation does not equal causation sort of thing, where, like, it's, I, I partially sort of think that, like, this is the reason why Mirama sort of, went, um, like, sort of, like, experienced a downturn in, in popularity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But... A lot of people I asked also said, and my mom included, say that it's also due to the fact that there was a change of quality. It was the reason why they stopped going. Hmm. Personally speaking, I feel like once you hear that a big gang fight happened at a restaurant, it sort of becomes cursed. Hmm. Like, not literally, of course, but like, it it gives you that cursed vibe and you don't really want to go there, do you? Okay. So what is that? How does that affect how you think of the way these murders were portrayed in the in the media and the popular conversation? Um, I'm not sure. Again, like, maybe if I were old, if I was older, maybe, like, if I was, say, t- 10 years older, and if I had read about, like, the turf war to happen in 1999, maybe I would be, like, I would have heard about the Mirama thing and be like, oh, yeah, it's just, like, that thing. But because I was nine when Mirama happened, I, I, that's the first one I heard of it, right? So I'm wondering, maybe it's just how I personally experienced the story that, that is the reason why... I find it interesting. I'm also weary that, like, I'm sort of like over sensationalizing something that isn't that. That's sort of pretty grim when you think about it. 
Hmm. Yeah. But um, that's my wondering. Like maybe if you like if you're older, and I feel like a lot of people who are are older and who do know that would think that is not that special, because like, yeah, like Asian gangs were a thing in, from 1999 to 2005. Hmm. It does beg the question, the wider question of like what has changed since in terms of like um, gang violence um, because uh, and I looked up the homicide numbers from Statistics Canada so in the articles from 2004 the police said that it was one of the worst years for homicides um, 11 out of 28 homicides in 2004 were gang related hmm. but in the years since like um, the number of homicides has increased from like 34 to like peak year was 53 in 2011 I think or 2010 this was around the time that people were calling us Stabmonton probably uh, I guess we wouldn't know for sure if like how much of a percentage of those homicides are gang related it'd be interesting to see that if that if those numbers are available somewhere so I'd be interested to see if it actually goes up or down since 2004 have I ever told you about the the t-shirt I got for Finn that was based on that tweet somebody put out from Calgary that called us twitchy-eyed machete-wielding savages in Edmonton and the t-shirt lines up the letters so it spells Yeg reading down <laughs> well that brings up in, um, some of the articles I saw like there were articles just on Asian gangs and there were there were mentions of like how there were especially like especially the Vietnamese gangs were violent and they'd use like machetes oh. wow there was a lot of articles I can't really like pick on one particular one that's like particularly enlightening hmm. there was just a lot of stuff hmm we haven't I guess I hadn't mentioned this but also so in the story about um, the police failing to broker a peace deal between the gangs involved um, at the Miramar thing there was a, a story mentioned that another man was killed supposedly in retaliation to that so yeah this is around November 25th 2004 um, Hui Li Nguyen was killed outside a Southside Noodle House um, I heard the story says that three other people were injured um, but they survived but this one guy was killed and I'm not sure how the police knew knew it was related to the earlier incident, but that's what they said that it was in retaliation to it. And it sort of was it happened around the same time. I guess it's what prompted them to try to broker a peace de- broker peace deal. This was another a third murder associated with the Mirama incident. Then this happened months later. Yeah. So Mirama happened in July. This happened in November. Wow. Um. Holy man. That is a lot of research. This is fascinating. Inconclusive research, I want to say. Like, I wish it was, I wish I had a more like, clear picture, but I guess, but that's all I've been able to find so far. It sort of sucks that, like, late into the game, I was able to unearth, like, a new window into this. Hmm. Um, but, yeah. That's how it goes on research. It's not linear, and if you're lucky, you find stuff you never knew you were looking for. Um, yeah. And I'm surprised all this wasn't like isn't mentioned a lot in a lot of like stuff post 2010 like that's online because trying to look at this online it makes me made me thought that like the topic of Asian gangs at Edmonton was sort of a black hole that no one knew anything about, but in the 90s it was a big issue. You had city councilors sort of like talking about it. I wish I could find out more about what happened in 1999 rather than just like a spree of shootings. Hmm. Uh, but I didn't have time. By the time I I got to the 1999 folder, like the archives was closing that day. <laughs> Right. Huh. Um, there's a lot of like meaty details I, I'm not I'm missing out on. So in the articles I I found from late 2004 about the deferred murder, 
Um, I believe the guy who was in charge of the department of like the gang, the guy from the gang department uh, or gang squad or whatever, said that at the time they estimate that there's around 600 gang members across 17 groups. Wow. Um, considering that so much of it is dr- uh, based on drug trafficking, it makes me wonder how some of that's changed. Because um, a lot of this was uh, revolved around what they called like dial-a-doper, which I didn't really know was a term. Because <laughs> I guess I'm too young. Okay, <laughs> tell us what dial-a-doping dial-a-doper means. Dial-a-doper just basically means people who deliver drugs like once they get a cell phone ping or a beeper ping. Right. It sounds like most of the drugs they were, like, it sounds like the big thing they were dealing was, like, I believe crack, cocaine. Wow. So I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if, like, the, de- the, the, de- the decriminalization of marijuana may have, like, put a dent in that. Huh. I feel like the person who would, who would be keen to talk to would be Tom Engel, who was recently featured in um, an episode of, uh, what? Is this for real? Is this for real? Because yeah. from what I read, he did represent some of the gangs who were caught in the 1999 bust. So, I'm glad you said that. Listening to Is This For Real, which is Omar Salafu's podcast about policing and anti-black racism in Edmonton. Um, yeah. In their first episode, Dickensfield, they talk about another murder um, that was also unsolved. Uh and the the way that they talk about that murder, like they they frame it sort of in the context of like questions about are police sufficiently motivated to solve murders among black people in that context, and it it, it made me think like is this part of the reason why these murders haven't been solved? Like, would these families like have more closure if they weren't from a Vietnamese or like? gang-related background? I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and say no. Like, obviously, like, I don't want to be unnecessarily critical of the police when I'm, like, without the evidence in the hand, right? It just sounds like there were a lot of complicating factors involved in this particular case about Mirama, like, you know, where, where you have witnesses, you have a lot of witnesses, but witnesses, they all know each other, and they're all, like, potentially fear, fearful of reprisal. Hmm. And maybe that for a murder is, is an example of that reprisal. We don't really know for sure. Right. Um, uh, I did ask like the detective about that. Like, is there a priority in terms of like historical homicides? And it doesn't sound like really, like not really. Like, it's just they deal with, it, they keep it open. They see if there's new information that pops up, and when they do, they make charges if they can. Hmm. We forgot to mention that my my whole trip to the archives started as a try to. You suggested trying to find the obits for these two men, Min Tang and and James Tran. Yeah. Of which I wasn't able to find. Um, which is sort of surprising. This, um, I also emailed the provincial archives, and they couldn't find the obituaries for them. And and but yeah, I wondered I, if we were looking in the right city. We haven't mentioned at all that um, the death of the former owner of the Dynasty Century Palace um, owner, um, Dita, right. Dita Wong, who was murdered in 2012, I believe. Dynasty being the restaurant that Thomas, who was in our second episode, went on to be owner at Dynasty. Yes. Um, I should note, an old colleague from the Gateway wrote like a dim sum, a guide to dim sum in Edmonton ages ago, like ancient history, um, and she sort of like connected the two in the blurb, um, like not necessarily the case of like, hey, we know it's the same people, but like in the hey, these are restaurants that have a rest that have a reputation for gang violence. It's also interesting because like, Dynasty is in many ways 
the uh, inheritor to like the whole that like Miramar left in community when it closed down. Mm. Sort of like that hub of community events. Right. Um, so, but yeah, I, 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 I probably heard of this, but forgot about it. But like, so in 2000, in, in September, 2012, the owner of dynasty restaurant was gunned down in his driveway. Um, oh God. in his Crestwood home. And, what? and the, pl- the story I have that I'm looking at right now on my laptop is from 2017 where police made a new renewal five years af- afterwards asking for new tips and his death. Um, but we mentioned obits. This guy does have an obit, and, and it sounds like this guy was well-loved in the community. Um, we do know he was survived by his daughter, um, stuff like that. So that that's probably even more brutal. I don't, I don't, there's no mention here specifically in the story if it's gang-related or not. Yeah. Um, it does probably give the vibe of being, it being a gang-related story, but it sounds like there's not much on that one either. Any other juicy tidbits you wanted to drop in from your research journey? I think I didn't really answer your question on is this is Mirama still like a special thing? I want I to know what you think about that because like again like I my reasons for thinking it is special are very personal related. Hmm. Just like as a kid who sort of read the news too much, um, but was also too young to remember the stuff that happened before. Hmm. Um, maybe it is special. Maybe it's not. I think that's up to people to decide on their own. I mean, okay, here's my thoughts on it. Whether something is like unique or important or worth putting in the historical record, which is kind of what we're doing here, is is dependent on who's doing the introspection, on, on who's looking at it. And it obviously left a scar with you, um, thinking about this place that, that like, you had fond memories of that you liked and that lots of people, lots of listeners have told us they remember really fondly having um, banquets and parties with friends at. A friend of mine put it best that saying like going to Mirama itself was just a culture in its own. <laughs> and for, that, for a lot of Asians, kids like me who grew up in Edmonton around that time. Well, I think that's, that's maybe the thing I would say is most important with this question of like, is what happened there special or unique or like especially noteworthy like it mattered to you it left a wound that you and many other people who love this place are still kind of dealing with maybe not a wound but definitely an, an answered question yeah i know i'm i'm weary of like over sensationalizing crime but like it's like it's a, it's a great trivia sort of like thing to bring up like hey like this happened and it happened it involved two weddings and involved gangs like and then people immediately picture West Side Story. <laughs> the fight between, uh, what's his name, Riff and Bernardo. How, how could it not? I guess, I guess the way that we could overrate what people think of is if there's a new musical written about the Mirama. Just putting that out there for listeners. <laughs> Reimagine it where it's actually like, it is like two people between two gangs getting married. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... West Side Story is just a riff on Romeo and Juliet. It's and Romeo and Juliet, I'm sure Shakespeare stole from another story. Yeah, I'm curious as to like whether or not the people who got married there are still married. That I'd love to know. But too. we only know the name of one couple who got married there. But you think that like there's a registry, a wedding registry, or something like that? You think that there would be like maybe a guest list too? 
If it's a wedding, there might even be photos somewhere. There are definitely photos somewhere. Sadly, this is our last episode of the series, though, of, of this mini-series on the Mirama. Um, so listeners, feel free to send them. But this is, this is our last in, uh, episode investigating this. So, Nathan, here's the question I'm most interested in from this whole series is you've been spending literally months researching this too, restaurant. Too many months. <laughs> you've, you've, um, you've taught me and listeners a lot of cool stuff about um, what the restaurant was like, what kind of like cultural stuff happened there, what fond memories families had there the context of it fitting into the different waves of Chinatown and immigration here. We learned about that that wild veterans pension fundraiser. Um, and now we've learned about the, the murders and sort of more of the context of what happened there. So Nathan, tell me, like, how has this research changed the way that you see this restaurant? I think it definitely, I think before this, I didn't realize it was a quote culture that sort of like every, a lot of people participated in hmm. like it was just a thing that like that was a part of a lot of people, part of the experience of a lot of like Asian Edmontonians growing up here mm-hmm. um, I think it, yeah it's just part of that communal experience and I think that's why it made it special that it mattered to more than just you um yeah not not food wise mind you like mm-hmm. it's sort of like as a restaurant itself it wasn't i guess it wasn't that special like if that if that makes sense like it wasn't like oh it had the the best meal or something like that like everyone who i like a lot of people i spoke to sort of agreed that like it wasn't really a place where its meals sort of could sort of save it at the end mm. but i think what made it special is that the fact that it, it was like um a hub that a lot of people went to well to me, um, this is the the service that you've done. Uh, is like you've helped me and listeners reclaim a little bit of this connection to Chinese history and culture here, and I appreciate it. I think the biggest thing that I learned is definitely one: there was a retaliation murder <laughs> in response to this wedding that went terribly awry, mm-hmm. and that two, the cops did actually try to broker a peace deal. Hmm. I guess that's the other thing I learned too: is that like trying to dig into an old crime is not easy trying to dig into the issue of, of gangs is also not easy because as omar salafu puts it no one wants to talk about gangs hmm. really at this point i think interestingly i think i've gone a little bit the opposite way a lot of daily crime reporting i i feel like is a distraction for people this is my general feeling is like um a lot of news coverage about crime just like makes people anxious more than they should be about how dangerous it is to live in their community and there are like bigger picture issues like climate change that are just looming over us that we don't talk about on a daily basis the way we talk about like oh this shooting happened or 20 years ago dialogue has changed a lot both on on terms of those bigger issues like you said mm-hmm. as well as how like because the thing about gangs is that you can't talk about gangs without talking about race mm-hmm. And the way we've talked about race has changed a lot in the last two decades. Hmm. Well, okay, this is, what, this is what I think you've taught me, is like a little more appreciation for the value of crime reporting because seeing what you've pulled up about, um, about the gangs, about the impact of these murders on the restaurant and all the people who cared about this restaurant, like I feel like I get more 
how violence like this can keep can can make waves that keep going for decades in this case. Thanks for listening. Let's Find Out is produced by Chris Changyun Phillips, Trevor Chow Fraser, and me, Nathan Fung. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher. You can also find them on letsfindoutpodcast.com, where you can sign up for a newsletter. Special thanks to Regan Owen, Dylan Bremner, and Omar Salafu. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting this podcast. Original music is by our own Doug Hoyer. Until next time, keep your questions coming.